Welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. My name is Conrad Weaver, and I'm so glad you decided to join us today for this show. The program you're about to listen to is an interview I conducted with Brandon Griffith, a police officer out of Arizona. We did this interview back on September 20th, and it was live on YouTube. And so it's basically we're bringing it to you just as we produced it that night, so with very little editing involved at all. So just a reference, if you're wondering what the YouTube thing is, uh, you can check out the whole interview with the uh, YouTube clips at PTSD911movie. If you go to YouTube and search for that, you will find it, and you will see the entire interview live and in person, just as it was produced uh, that night on September 20th. But anyway, here's the audio for that interview. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Leave a comment. Be sure to hit the subscribe button if you enjoy the content that we're delivering with this program. And we hope to bring you more shows and interviews like this in the near future. Thanks again for listening. And here again is the show PTSD 911 Presents. Welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. My name is Conrad Weaver, and I'm coming to you live from my studio here in Emmitsburg, Maryland. We're about an hour west of Baltimore, hour and a half northwest of Washington, D.C., and I'm so glad you decided to join us tonight. We're going to be joined by a special guest in just a minute, but while the room is filling up and people are coming in, if you would uh, be so kind as to leave a comment in the chat and let us know where you are from. I see Lauren from... Saratos, California. Sorry if I mispronounced that, uh, but welcome. I see there's some other people in the room. And if you uh, have a Google account, if you want to register and just make sure you're uh, in the chat and uh, commenting as to where you're from. But uh, it's a special night. We're having. We're here to talking about heart health and first responders. And uh, we're, I'm going to introduce our guest in just a minute. But so uh, if you are a first responder. I want to say, first of all, thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for uh, being a part of our community and helping to take care of our community. And I just want to welcome you into the room and encourage you to to make connections here tonight with other people in the room. I see we have Tanya from Nashville and Lauren from Saratos, and there's a bunch of others of you that I don't know where you're from yet, but if you want to leave your name or leave your city and then if you are a first responder, let us know that as well. Just say, yes, I'm a first responder, or just say I'm a police officer or a firefighter or a dispatcher. Let us know. That way we kind of know who we're talking to. And so, but I want to say, you know, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of this. You know, the trailer you just saw for the film, PTSD 911, is a work that we're that's in progress. We, it's in production right now. And I'm actually leaving tomorrow to go down to the Virginia Beach area to spend uh, a couple of days with a firefighter down there and capturing his story and his family's story. And our goal is to raise awareness, to smash the stigma of asking for help and to inspire change in agencies because we know that there's some agencies that need change in how they deal with trauma and deal with uh, those those injuries that many, many first responders have when it comes to mental health. And if this resonates with you, I wanna ask you and invite you to join with us and partner with us in helping to make this film happen. And, And I put a link in the comments above that if you care to make a make a small donation to the film, we'd be so grateful if you would jump in. We've had many, many people who have already done that. And we uh, 
we would lo- we'd love you to join with us to help help get this film to production. But tonight, we are presenting this program that the PTSD 911 presents is a free podcast program that we started a few months ago for first responders and those who help support first responders. And again, my name is Conrad Weaver. I'm the host here. And I'm also the director of the film trailer that you just saw. And so I want to thank you for joining us. And I encourage you to put your questions in the chat. I'll be monitoring the chat all evening and toward the end of the hour that we're here tonight, we will we will get to some of those questions, as many as we can. And so please uh, feel free to put those questions in the chat and uh, we can include them in the program. But tonight we're honored to have with us Brandon Griffith. He's a founder and CEO of Griffith Blue Heart Nonprofit, which specializes in preparing, training and equipping equipping law enforcement for resuscitation emergencies like cardiac arrest and hemorrhage control. Brandon is an Arizona police officer, multidisciplined instructor, former EMT, and an out-of-hospital sudden cardiac arrest survivor. And he's going to share his story tonight. Brandon is the founding board member of Arizona Cardiac Arrest Survivors Group. He sits on the Arizona Department of Health Services, Heart Disease, and Stroke Workgroup. He has been honored to be awarded the Heroism Award and countless life-saving awards recognized by both the Phoenix Business Journal and Citizen CPR Foundation 40 Under 40 programs and as a recipient of congressional recognition for his actions as a police officer and his life-saving programs. His proudest accomplishment is in life is marrying his high school sweetheart and fathering his two incredible children. Brandon, welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. Hey, Conrad. I'm really honored. Thank you for having me on today. Well, it's uh, so you're coming to us out of Arizona. How is the weather in Arizona today? Uh, you know, it's September. We're right, sitting about about 100 degrees today, something like that. So <laughs> hopefully we'll get some cool weather soon. Well, we are in the I think in the 60s tonight or low 70s here in Maryland. So really enjoying that early fall weather. Way to rub it in. <laughs> of course, of course. So I know I want to jump right in. I don't want to delay much here because we don't have a whole lot of time tonight, but I want to just get a background on your story. Tell us about you. Tell us uh, about your family and tell us your story about uh, the, the cardiac issues that you had in as you you know, were uh, you, on the job. Absolutely. You know, you did a great job doing the introduction. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh I was 26 at the time of my cardiac arrest. I wish I could tell you that I was doing something cool. Being a cop, I wish I could say I was in a fight or chasing a meth head or something. But like four out of five cases, I was at home. I was simply reading a book. And my wife makes fun of me because I've been shot at. I've been blown up. I've been in water rescues. And I died at home reading a book. So it just goes to show you never know when your time is up. So I'm sitting with my wife. I put my book down. I said, hey, I'm going to take the dog out. I took about two steps towards my door. And it just hit me like a freight train. If you've ever had someone jump out and scare you, you know, you know, when your heart skips that beat, well, imagine that happening nonstop. But it's weird when you go through critical stress incidents, you experience all kinds of weird things. And being a police officer, you get auditory exclusion, tunnel vision. For me, I experienced time distortion. So even though I collapsed in about a second and a half, I remember every single detail because everything just slowed way down for me. And it's kind of hard because most survivors I talk to don't remember their incident. They wake up in the hospital a day, a month later on, and they're told what happened to them. But I remember every single detail. My wife turns around. She sees on my face is the darkest purple she'd ever seen. 
and I'm doing what's called agonal breathing, where I'm trying to force myself to breathe. But when you're in cardiac arrest, it is physically impossible for your lungs to expand with oxygen. So I was basically sitting there going, <laughs> trying to force myself to breathe. Well, it didn't work. I collapsed into my bookshelf. My wife calls 911, puts the phone on the ground. She's about five foot three. I'm six foot four and a half. So she tries to brace me and I topple right over her and put my head through the wall. I land on my hands and my knees and I'm looking out in my hallway and I'm starting to experience tunnel vision, but it's nothing like what I've experienced on duty. It's this dark, dark purple and basically everything is, is fluttering out on me. Well, now I know that that was the blood draining from my brain and my ocular cavities. So I'm looking out in my hallway and that feeling of helplessness is something that I can't describe. Here, I'm a cop and I'm an EMT. I used to be a lifeguard. I trained my entire life for these to respond to these kinds of incidents. And in this moment, there is absolutely nothing I can do. Right then I dropped dead, I collapsed. My wife rolled me on my back. She started doing CPR on me. She worked on me for four and a half, five minutes until a fellow police officer arrived. He was the first on scene, but he was not equipped with an AED. Uh, he did, he jumped on my chest and just did a phenomenal job of doing CCR. He worked on me until fire and EMS arrived. They dragged my body in my living room where they had more room to work. They had to IO drill me, they drilled through my leg. They, uh, they started dumping me full of meds and it took multiple shocks, but all in all, I was dead for 16 and a half, 17 minutes before I was finally resuscitated. Woke wow. up, started pushing guys off me. And I, I don't yeah. remember that part. My wife told me not to leave her. I said, I won't. Um, I remember the sway of the gurney and I remember the footsteps of the rocks in my front yard before I got in the ambulance. And it's the next five days that are a blur for me when my brain was resetting from all the hypoxia. So hmm. that's a little bit about what happened to me. What? So let's kind of back up what led up to that. You were, you're 26 years old. You're, you know, young, you're vibrant, you're strong, you're healthy. You thought, right. So at, at what point did you go into law enforcement and, and just give us this a snapshot of, of, of why? Yeah, so uh, cardiac arrest has had a profound impact on my life. You know, it started when I was a young kid, uh, even in high school. The first time I did CPR, I wasn't even a man. I mean, I was working at a hotel in private security when one of our guests collapsed. And here I am, I'm 16, 17 years old doing CPR on his guest and his wife and his daughter walked up right while I'm in the middle of it and he didn't make it. I mean, fire and EMS had a nine and a half, 10 minute response time and we didn't have an AED. He had almost no chance, but I remember looking his daughter in the eye and never wanted to feel that way again. And, you know, I grew up around cops and military I trained in martial arts since I was four. So I was always around that culture and I wanted to do something bigger than myself i've always wanted to serve and plus i'm an adrenaline junkie like there's nothing like kicking in a door knowing someone's waiting there with a gun for you like it's 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 an adrenaline rush so mm -hmm. um how old were you when you became when you put the badge on uh so i first tested as soon as i was eligible as soon as i turned 20 and a half i started testing i got hired right away with my first agency but this was right in the middle of the recession in 2008 so they laid off our entire academy class before we started and i ended up oh, getting wow. picked up with another agency so I got to work out in Buckeye Police Department where I worked for over a decade before I transferred to another agency. Mm -hmm. So in your younger years, did you ever have any kind of issues related to heart issues? Did you have any signs that something was amiss? Absolutely not. And this is where the, there's a lot of common mis, misconceptions about cardiac arrest. And so cardiac arrest is not a heart attack. And most of the time when you hear it, most people jump to the conclusion that they think you had a heart attack and they think there's got to be something wrong with you. You must have a, a defect in your heart. You must have this. But cardiac arrest is just an electrical misfunction. 
Uh, it just it just misfires in your heart from the time you're in the womb to the day you die. Your heart sends these electrical impulses that cause your heart to beat in the right sequence. It takes one misfire for you to drop dead like I did. And this is what's happening. It's the number one cause of death in our country. It's the number one cause of death for our youth. And we lose 27,000 kids per year. And most people don't know that young athletic males are at the highest risk. So all those stories you see of kids dropping on the playground, playing basketball. I mean, just in the the world championship soccer game you had that star athlete drop right in the middle of the field i mean this happens all the time and people think that there's got to be something wrong with you you have to have you know uh, you have to have some diagnosed disease and most of the guys that i've dealt with around my age never got a diagnosis my heart's been tested in every shape and form i've had my blood broken down to chromosomic levels my heart's healthy on a horse there's nothing wrong with it it was just one of those random misfires and will it happen again i have no idea but they put a defibrillator in my chest to prevent it and they put me on medicine as well so i'm hoping it doesn't happen but if it is you know i'm on borrowed time anyway you know i had years ago we had a, a good friend whose son i think he was 10 he was playing basketball healthy kid and that's what happened to him in, in the middle of a game he's collapsed and that was it and it was very sad and and I'm pretty, I'm, I'm certain that that's what the issue was here. It was just, uh, like you said, a misfire. And, um, but yeah, that's, that's really something that, is it something, and I know you're not a doctor and I'm not a doctor, but um, we might have some doctors in the room here, but uh, is it something that uh, can be prevented? Is it, or is it just something that is just, uh, uh, for some reason, it, there's some, you know, wiring that goes awry? So there, there are definitely, when it comes to cardiac arrest, there are some contributing factors that can be detected beforehand. There's plenty of heart screenings. There's plenty of birth defects and other um, genetic issues that people are born with. The, there are a whole bunch of programs that do phenomenal work doing EKGs to kids, and they have pre-screenings for athletes. They're also looking for things like, you know, hypertropic cardiomyopathy, which is an enlarging of the heart. There's a whole bunch of stuff that get tested for it, but you also have all these athletes that have no indication whatsoever. And unless they go for a specific test, testing like it's very hard to get diagnosed with long qt or brugada or wolf parkinson's white all these different electrophysiological diseases it's very time consuming and expensive to try to do genetic testing to test for these things so it's kind of hard because it, we're mostly reactive when it comes to cardiac arrest and because it's such a time sensitive issue for every minute you wait to initiate to initiate cpr the chance of survival goes down 10 percent. so i mean if you're waiting six minutes 10 12 minutes for fire and ems to arrive on scene you have almost no chance of survival which is why it's so important to have defibrillators to train to train our police officers because we're on scene first most of the time in that one to four and a half minutes where we have the highest probability of survival so that's one of the reasons why after i went back to the field I, I, first of all, it was a fight just to go back. Here I am 26, I just made my SWAT team, I'm in phenomenal shape and I'm facing medical retirement. You know, my command staff had no idea what to do with me. They looked at me and like, they looked at me as damaged goods, except for the support of my chief, Mark Mann, who's a godsend. He had my back and we went toe to toe with risk management and I had to fight to keep my job because they didn't know what happens. What, what do they do with a cop with an ICD? Is his radio gonna affect it? And what happens if he gets tased? Is the stress from the job gonna mess with it? So they were kind of treating me like this China doll. And I said, look, I'm safer than any officer on this department. Not only am I on medication to prevent these issues, my heart's healthier than a horse, but now I have a device in my chest that shocks me out of it. You guys are Tell all at the same that. risk. What, what kind of device is that and how does that work? So I have an automated implantable cardioverter defibrillator in my chest. Essentially, they put this lead in your heart, and it's got a little computer and a puck in your chest. And 
sits right here underneath this scar. Basically, if it detects a cardiac arrest arrhythmia, it will shock me out of it. So were you, if you collapsed right now, Conrad, you would need CPR and an AED and you have, or you have almost no chance of survival. Me, as soon as I collapse, this thing registers it within like 26 or 27 beats and gives me that shock. And I know so many survivors that have had to be saved by the device. You know, one of my good friends has been saved over a dozen times by his. Luckily for me, I've never had an incident. Well, I had one in the hospital when they were programming it, but that was an operator issue on their part, not not on me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I guess that was that implanted like immediately after this, or, or soon after your event. It was within a couple of days. I said I spent about five days in the hospital, and I said, "Look, we have no idea what caused your cardiac arrest. We don't know if it's going to happen again. If it happened once, it could happen again. So we're going to go and put this device in your chest to shock you in case." It does happen this way it'll save you you don't have to rely and hopefully somebody has an aed around or hopefully someone as good a train as your wife was when you went down mm -hmm. so what uh, so I, I know we're not doctors here but uh, i know in an email earlier today that i sent out to all the subscribers i said hey we're talking about heart attack and you kindly reminded me that this is not about heart attack but there's a difference between the two between a cardiac arrest and a heart attack and so again you and i are not medical doctors but in your estimation what is the difference between the two you know i i can guarantee all the survivors that are listening to this right now all these bells are firing off because as soon as they hear it too there's so many times people stigmatize it and just like mental health they go oh you had a heart attack no so a heart attack is basically a more myocardial infarction is a plumbing issue a section of your heart has got a blockage so a part of your heart's not getting oxygenated blood right those are 95 percent survivable those are the ones you see where they're glabbing their chest they're awake they're sweaty they're you know those are 95 percent survivable where cardiac arrest is imagine you plug in the christmas tree and it shorts and that's what cardiac arrest is. Your heart goes into either ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, this quivering motion. And without defibrillation, you can't return back to a normal beat. And that's where all that stuff you see on TV is complete bullshit. When you see them and they all clear and they, they wake up instantly or you see the, you see the little flat lining and, and no, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. You know, the heart's in this quivering motion and once it gets shocked, it goes back to the normal beats. So in your training, when you were going through the academy, when you were going through all your, your law enforcement training, was there anything in your training that prepared you for something like this? So you, we did go through a first aid block where they teach you CPR, they teach you how to use an AED, but they don't prepare you for the realities of it. I mean, we spend so much time, and I, I'm a firearms instructor, I'm a tactical guy, SWAT guy, I absolutely love it, but we spend so much time focusing on the firearms aspect of it, and let's, let's compare it. Last year, we had 1,100 fatal police shootings across this country. Do you know how many people died from heart disease? 690,000 Americans died from heart disease, and more than half of those were cardiac arrests. So it's like, why aren't we preparing for our number one cause of death? We wouldn't send our guys to an active shooter without a ballistic vest and a firearm. Why are we sending our guys to the number one cause of death without an AED and without high-performance resuscitation training? So that's one of the reasons why after I went back to the field, I, which was a fight anyway, once I fought to keep my job and I returned to the field, I realized how unprepared law enforcement really is for cardiac emergencies. So we started kind of taking the, me the methodology that we did for SWAT training, for hostage rescue, for barricade situations, for active shooter. And we took that reality-based training at Griffith Blue Heart and we implemented it with resuscitation. So now we actually have guys going through scenarios with actors, with evaluators, with feedback mannequins that measure depth, rate, recoil, fractionality limitations, and we put them under stress so they know how they're going to react because it, 
a lot of things contribute to cardiac arrest. You know, emergency hemorrhages like blood loss from a car accident. Once you lose a bunch of blood volume, your heart can go into cardiac arrest, traumatic brain injuries, drug overdoses, all things that cops are on scene first for every single day across this country. So it's so important that we prepare and we equip our officers for these emergencies. So we had someone, you know, in the in the chat said law enforcement are typically first on the scene. And is that in your case too? Because I guess you're you're on the street already and you're 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 closer to the the scene where where the cardiac arrest or the, the heart attack is happening. So is that what really motivates you to 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 get these AEDs in every patrol car? 100%. So let's let's do a little looking at this. So four to five cases happen in the home, right? So if you look at it where you where your police officers are responding to your neighborhood, you've got guys on patrol 24/7. Say you've got a squad of 6, 8, 3, however many it is. Police officers are spread throughout our jurisdiction. So as soon as that 911 call gets hit, we're already out in the field when it happens. We're not responding from a central location like the fire department. And Please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. I'm not dogging the fire department. Our fire and EMS partners are phenomenal and they do a great job. But the problem is they're limited in how they can respond. One, you got four guys on one truck that are responding to it. And if they're on a call, they have something called advocate response. So if they're with a diabetic who's got a hypoglycemic issue, they can't toss them a Snickers and say, hey, good luck. Someone's worse than you down the street. They're stuck with that patient until they get them the proper medical care. So the next closest unit gets dispatched. Well, if they're on a car accident, the next closest unit gets dispatched, which is exactly what happened in my incident. Even though I lived half a mile away from the fire station, it took them nine and a half minutes to get to me. Where law enforcement, if I'm on some bull bullshit barking dog call or some civil matter and someone's dying down the street, I have to break to go help them out. So law enforcement is uniquely positioned to make the biggest impact on cardiac survival because four out of five incidents happen in the home. Where are police officers? We are constantly patrolling our neighborhoods and the businesses surrounding them. But there's such a focus in the cardiac industry on public access to fibrillation, which is great. Uh, it's great to have AEDs in your sporting arenas and your airports because it's very plausible that someone could drop right there. But 77% of your cases happen in your home. Are you prepared right now if your wife, if your kid goes down? If you go down, are they prepared if you drop? This is something that most people aren't. Most people don't have an AED in their in their homes. So why not equip our fastest first responders with the equipment and the training they need? Because if you look at most municipal agencies, they're on scene within that first one to four and a half minutes where you can make the biggest impact on survival. You know, I think it's similar during, you know, in, in the opioid crisis where law enforcement, you know, carries Narcan. And I was with, you know, many officers, you know, on when I was working on a film about the opioid crisis and, Every one of them, you know, carried multiple units of Narcan because they knew that they are going to be the first on scene generally. 100 percent. And if you look at this, if you study the history of medical response, police did not traditionally be associated with any kind of medical response. And with when you started seeing the prevalence of active shooters in a country in the mid 90s, as things started to pick up, officers started carrying things like tourniquets and chest seals intended for self-aid. If I get hit, we started responding to car accidents, gunshot victims, suicide attempts, and we started using them on the people we serve, and we got more saves than fire and EMS. Then with the opiate crisis, the same thing happened. There was a lot of reluctance. Cops didn't want to be carrying pharmaceuticals, but once they go, oh, I just put this in their nose and I spray it. Once they started using Narcan, we started getting more saves than fire and EMS combined. And again, this is the next step in the evolution. It's giving our officers the training and the equipment to save people from our leading cause of death, which is heart disease. So do you ever get pushback from people saying, you know, cops aren't 
aren't medical. They're, they're, they should be out there just enforcing the laws. They shouldn't be responding to this kind of stuff. Is that, is that an issue? You'll see it, you know, uh, especially with some of the old school cops that grew up and back in the day, CPR was a joke. You were lucky back. I mean, it's changed and evolved so much over the years. Back in the day, if a medic was on scene in the first three to four minutes and they got a pulse back and that person was a vegetable, that was considered a save. Now, once it's evolved and we were doing hands-only CPR, not only have we quadrupled survival here in Arizona, but we've got better brain outcomes by up to 350%. So some of these old school cops will say, you know, if I wanted to be, if I wanted to be a medical guy, I'd be an EMS, I'd be a firefighter, I'd have a different badge on my chest. You get some of that, but when you start showing them the numbers in their city and you say, Hey, look, you guys had 215 cardiac arrests in your city last year in this city with a size of say a hundred thousand people in it. And this is how often you guys are on scene first. This is the projected impact you could have made on survival. When they look at the numbers, they go, you're telling me we could have saved you know, 75, 80 people last year said easily. And they start looking at it and going, you know what? Preservation of life is our highest priority as public servants. I don't care what that is, whether they, they, we had blowback from stop sticks, we had blowback from tasers, we had blowback from Narcan and tourniquets. There's two things cops hate, comrade. It's change and the way things are. <laughs> and so as soon as they start seeing the way things are adaptable and they start seeing, as soon as they implement an AED program and they start getting saves, they get addicted. And mm. some of our programs that have taken off, you see a whole new light. When these officers start getting those saves, they start like craving. I wonder when I'm going to get the next one. And they start, mm. they're getting amped for it. And it's something that I absolutely love to see because I know once we start getting some of these independent studies in that are looking at our programs, once you show you can quadruple survival, it's going to spread like wildfire and pretty much it's going to be common nature. Every cop in the country is going to have this. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's turn it inward a little bit and look at cops and first responders themselves. Why is it that, you know, heart related issues are much higher in that population than the general population. And again, just disclaimer, we're not doctors and all that, but we can, you look at some of these numbers, right? Uh, absolutely. And that's one of the funny things. I know all my survivors on here, once you survive a cardiac arrest, they kind of slap you on the back and say congratulations and send you out there. You become obsessed with it. You start reading medical journals and stuff outside your fields. So you, you pretty much become a doctor with the amount of medical journals and studies you go into. But no, you're right. I'm not a doctor and you're 100% correct. Law enforcement has got some of the highest rates of cardiovascular disease. And think about it. I mean, cops are out there 24 seven a day. All of our officers are sleep deprived and it's not, it's not by their own admission. Think you work a 10 to 12 hour shift and most of the time you're doing overtime or you get a later rest, you're staying late. Oh, but the next morning I got court. Oh, the next morning I have training. So you're getting three, four hours of sleep. So what else do we turn to? Caffeine. So all these guys are carrying, all these guys are drinking Red Bulls and rock stars and slamming energy drinks. We all know somebody that shows up to briefing with like two or three cans and just cracks one after the other, the entire shift. On top of that, we are constantly having our endocrine systems thrown into overdrive. All shift, you are having an adrenaline dump, a dopamine dump, cortisol, dimethyl giant, all these crazy things that are happening to you from every single call you go to. I mean, when, as soon as that hot tone kicks out, subject with a knife, Dude, subject or domestic violence in progress, you know, foot pursuit. When one of your officers calls for help, you get adrenaline dumps and dopamine dumps. So your body doesn't fully recover, especially when you're not getting good sleep, especially when you're not working out. And a lot of these guys don't have the time to work out the way they'd like to. And most guys are not eating healthy. You know, it's quickly stuffing your face through a drive through or picking up something from the gas station. 
uh, weird things contribute to hypertension and heart disease that you wouldn't even think of. I mean, there was an incident uh, a few years back uh, after I was on scene involved for an officer involved shooting. The next morning I happened to have my medical checkup and my heart, my heart rate was through the roof. Not only was that, they said I was hypertensive and I'm in my twenties. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And I'm trying to figure it out. He goes, do you have a lot of sodium in your diet? I'm like, no, not at all. Well, I go back the next week. I said, well, I wasn't involved in a shooting last night. Maybe that's it. Came back the next week. My heart rate or my hypertension is still there. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Hmm. So I started looking at it. Every single shift I was going in, hitting QT or getting a bag of uh, mm -hmm. the Jim Beam barbecue sunflower seeds, all shift just roaming around spitting seeds. Well, I had no idea how much sodium was in there. As soon as I stopped doing sunflower seeds, it stopped. And you got a bunch of cops that do chew, a bunch of guys that smoke and vape, trying to keep stay awake during their shifts. And that's all contributing factors. So yeah, heart disease is very prevalent in this community. And I mean, I've had several friends drop on duty. In fact, this weekend at one of our events, we're going to be recognizing one of my buddies who had a heart attack on duty and on the way to the hospital, I believe he coded twice. So, I mean, it's, it's very prevalent. And the, the sad fact is, is that workers' compensation doesn't cover that. Even though the job is a direct contributor to our heart disease, these guys aren't getting anything from workers' compensation when they have a heart attack on duty. And it's just... It's just downright wrong. Yeah, it's sad. We just had a, uh, a law enforcement officer locally here who passed away a couple of weeks ago because of that. And uh, very tragic. He's, he was a lieutenant uh, in the city and just uh, very well liked and just had kids, you know, just really, really a tragic situation. And so it's it's an ongoing story that I hear over and over again in, in the circles that I'm that I'm going through. And it, it's a challenge. And and I'm sure just that knowledge in, and we're going to kind of touch a little bit on the mental health issue, even that knowledge, it, does it play in your brain? Does it kind of, kind of ride back there saying, you know, there's this issue that we, you know, all of us in this profession have a more, have a higher rate of, of, of heart attack or heart disease. It does. And, you know, if you look at the numbers, what's even scarier is that even those, those lucky guys that make it, that do the 20, 30 years and retire, most cops are dying within five to 10 years after retiring. Right. And you right. think it's because their systems have been in overdrive and at this peak for decades. And then all of a sudden they stop and their bodies don't know how to respond to it. So it's almost like a, stopping a heroin junkie or something like that you have to taper it off and you know, there's there's some guys that are very successful and live long fruitful lives and there's other guys that just can't handle not having those those adrenaline dumps and then that that lifestyle anymore mm -hmm. so it's very it's very scary and i i definitely we, we try to implement our programs as well to save our brothers and sisters in blue but also the people that we serve i mean heart disease is the number one cause of death not only in our country and the world we lost 17 million people across the globe last year and what baffles my mind is that nobody seems to know what it is or care we spent trillions on COVID 19 last right. year and we do all right. stuff on cancer but no one's really contributing or really researching or trying to take a stab at cardiac arrest and it just and, and really the, the underlying you know issues often related to diet and you know, lack of exercise or just, you know, stress that plays in all of our lives. You know, I think that's something that we need to approach. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working with some agencies, you know, for my film that are, are really looking at their whole system and, and how to create a culture of wellness within their agency. And that's a term that, that, that I'm starting to hear now that we don't need a wellness program. We need a culture of wellness in our agency so that we can maintain healthy lives and vibrant lives and thrive, not only, you know, 
while we're here on on duty and on the job but you know at home and in our neighborhood and when we're off duty as well i think that's that's so important and just to clarify i'm not a first responder i say we because i'm kind of in this field and hanging out with a bunch of you guys so uh, so, so I apologize for that. I'm not a first responder, but uh, hey, you're one of our champions, though. You're trying to help us out and let us be, live better lives. So I, I personally want to thank you for that. Sure. Well, I, it, it's an honor for me to do this. And so, so Brandon, what what have you seen in your program that you've been been putting out these? Uh, is it AEDs? How has that worked? How has that what, what are the results of that? Man, it's amazing when you start seeing it work. I mean, I was fortunate, even though my agency didn't know what cardiac arrest was, we were outfitted with AEDs before my incident. So I got to respond before and after my cardiac arrest and save personally save lives with my AED. So I saw the value in it long before, but across the country, there's only about 10 to 15% of agencies that are equipped with AEDs in the field, and almost none of them fully outfit all the field responsive officers. They're SROs, they're canines, they're traffic guys, everybody that's going to respond to a call in the field. But when we do implement these programs, it's not just a, here's some AEDs, good luck, like so many well-intentioned organizations do. They toss the AEDs at cops and hope that it works, but there needs to be a structure to support the program. There needs to be policies in place. There needs to be field deployment planning. They need to have the dispatch protocols to make sure that's right. Because, I mean, there's some agencies in this country that as soon as someone calls 911, they're not even notified. As soon as it's labeled as a medical call, it goes to fire and EMS. And there could be a cop a block away from your house, and he has no idea you're dying and could have made a difference. So first of all, it's changing those systems and then researching them and tracking them and sustaining them. You can't just toss cops AEDs and say, good luck and hope it is. They have to budget for it. They have to plan for it. They have to know how the recalls work. There's so much that goes into these programs, but when you fully put it together, it's amazing what some of the results can be. And one of the agencies in Northern Arizona we're working with, it's a small department. There's 27 people in that department from the chief down, and they only have a population of 12,000 people. Once we outfitted all of their patrol officers in the first six months, they had 13 AED deployments. And I was absolutely honored to award five of their officers for life saves earlier this year. Wow. We just got some more AEDs out there. So, I mean, the potential is limitless, especially when you look at like Dr. Roger White out in Rochester, Minnesota. Back in 1990, when CPR was a joke, outfitted cops with defibrillators and for a 26-year study, sustained a 67% survival rate of witness cardiac arrest. Wow. Now, to put that in perspective, the rest of the country sits about 7% for survival rate. This guy's got, this city's got the highest survival rate because of a fully implemented resuscitation program for law enforcement. It's not that they're special. They don't have some secret code that nobody else does. They just fully implemented a program and it can spread. There is no reason why our officers can't be fully equipped and trained and ready to respond to these things. And I think it's going to start taking off. These AED units, they're not that difficult to, to, to use, right? They're, they're pretty easy to use. I could teach an orangutan in about a minute. I mean, can you press, most of the time there's two buttons. Can you press an on button and it tells you exactly what to do? It's on, okay, place pads on patient's bare chest and hey, there's stickers. Okay, it's cop proof. I can put it on the chest, I can put it on the ribs and it says, okay, don't touch patient. I'm not gonna touch the patient. All right, shock advice, press this flashing button. And you press the button. I mean, how much training do you need on an AED? It's really, 
the civilians are covered by the Good Samaritan laws. They have them all over the place. You don't have to be trained. You don't have to be certified to use an AED. You're literally pressing two buttons. Some of them have videos that show you how to do it. Some of them have voice prompts. They do it in bilingual languages. It is an incredibly simple machine to use. Put some stickers on their chest and press some buttons. Hmm. So what? Uh, so for an agency of maybe twenty some <clears throat> sworn officers, you know, what what's the cost? associated with uh, putting AEDs in every car? So it depends. And that's why every single agency is so different. So every agency is going to have different needs. They, they may need some extra bells and whistles for this one. This one may need a bare bones unit. So some, are, some places get special deals and bulk deals. Some places go through nonprofits. It varies. But, you know, you can, some, some places are getting them as cheap as 600 some as expensive as 2000 bucks per unit. But there's always other programs that are going on. But you can't put a dollar amount on a human life, and especially the amount that we're saving, especially on your fellow officers. There's so much times where we're in a horrible situation where fire and ems can't come in because it's not safe or one of our officers is hit and you know we're, we're stuck there and fire and ems they haven't been cleared to come in you're on your own it's so important to be equipping our officers with the aed for self-care and for the people that we respond to and these units they're not just to clarify they're, they're not like a one-time use they're like you can use them again and again right uh, again and again, you can't use the same pads. You just replace sure. the pads. And sometimes the battery's got to get changed out. But mm-hmm. they're, they're compared to some of the look. Law enforcement spends a lot of money on a lot of crap. I'll tell you. I mean, <laughs> if you took a fraction of what we spent on body camera stuff, you'd be able to fund a, a, an AED program that will contribute to an untold amount of saved lives. So it just depends. It comes down to prioritizing it. So any of our law enforcement leaders that are out here listening to this, I challenge you to do what's right and look at your program. Contact your fire PIOs. Figure out how many calls are actually going out in your jurisdiction look at your fire response times compared to yours and see how big of a projected impact you can really make i think once you look at the numbers yourself you're going to jump on this bandwagon hmm. so uh about how many agencies do you have you outfitted in in arizona so uh, it's kind of a tough question because we've got several that we've worked with we, we've outfitted agencies like sedona goodyear page we've also we're writing grants currently for a bunch of other organizations or two organizations that i work for another one that we're friends with but i also work with organizations outside of arizona so i've done consulting work i've done grant writing we've done field deployment writing so we're getting there it's just i, I don't i don't have an exact number i'd have to pull it up for you mm-hmm. So just to let everybody know, you're listening and watching the PTSD 911 Presents program, the podcast, uh, the live interactive podcast. And this is interactive. And so if you're in the audience and you have a question for Brandon, or if you have a question for me, put it in the chat and I'll see it and we can bring it up on screen and we can uh, try to answer some of those questions. So uh, what's the biggest uh, pushback or thing that keeps agencies from wanting to do this funding 100 percent. it always comes down to money law enforcement has got so many responsibilities and wears so many different hats it's so hard to get the extra funds for these programs i mean that's always the number one issue if, if they had limited list money they would do it in a heartbeat as, as soon as they see how quickly and how easily these programs can be implemented so uh, While we're waiting for some of the questions, I'd like to touch on another issue that uh, a lot of people don't think about when it comes to the quality of CPR and what first responders do, and that is organ and tissue donation, too. Mm. So uh, you may not get the save you want. I have personally lost more people than I've saved, but I've also been accredited with over a dozen life saves from me personally. 
but there was one incident that always comes up to my mind that I like to share. It's uh, I was training this this rookie. They had this OIT, and we had a car accident, and the vehicle rolled over into a barricade. We showed up. We broke the window. We cut the seatbelt off. We pulled him out. He was pulseless and apneic. So we got our AED out of our car. We worked on him. We shocked him multiple times in about the 18-minute mark. We finally got a pulse back with fire, doing drugs and all kinds of fun stuff. So we're high five and we're thinking we got a good save. He goes off to the hospital. We later get contacted not only by the physician, but the the guy's mom. They want to talk to us. So we get told that the although we saved his life and got a pulse back, the accident caused irreversible brain and spine damage. Mm-hmm. So the guy was a vegetable. So we're thinking, man, now we just put this family in this horrible predicament. I feel awful. We get to the ho- we get to the hospital and mom's hugging us and thanking us. She's like, you know, not only did I get to say goodbye to my son, but his contribution, his organs, his tissue are going to be donated to I don't know how many people, how many of their lives are going to get saved because of the quality of CPR you guys did. And that's something that people overlook all the time is that you may not get the save you want, but if you can get that pulse back and keep those organs oxygenated, you can make a big difference in a lot of other people's lives. So put that in the back of your mind. Hmm. I know I always make sure that that box is checked on my driver's license so that, uh, you know, if something tragic would happen that, uh, you know, yeah, I'm not going to need them anymore. So <laughs> let someone else use them if, if they can have them. So that thing, that's a really, really key, key thing. You know, I think that so many law enforcement, first responder groups, uh, you know, are under so much stress and, and especially these days with COVID and with the unrest that's been going on and all the other things that are that, you know, just the, the typical life stresses. You know, it, it's really surprising that we don't even see more of this, uh, of, of heart issues and, you know, uh, cardiac arrest and other things like that in, in our first responders. And, you know, I just want to encourage everyone who's a first responder to make your health and your mental health a priority. I think it is so vital to to be well, because we need you guys. We need you out there on the street. We need you responding to our emergencies. And, and you all carry, you carry the traumas of the world on your shoulders. And, and so therefore I think it's, it's, it's challenging, but I think the bigger challenge is to make sure that you are taking care of yourself. I have a neighbor across the street here who's a sheriff's deputy and, you know, we talk a lot and, I often tell him that, you know, I see your car not in the driveway. I just say a prayer for you because I know you're out there doing whatever sheriff deputies do at night. You know, oftentimes he's working at night. And I just want to encourage you to, to you know, we need you. We, we need you to help take, keep our community safe and healthy. And so take care of yourself. And I think that's where it needs to start is you take care of yourself. Get that exercise. Get that diet right. Get that, you know, take, take time to have some white space in your life. So that, uh, you know, you, you're not uh, under the stress that can, can create some of these scenarios that we've been talking about. So it's a difficult task. You know, it, it does come down to discipline and it comes down to not believing the lies that we tell ourselves. I don't have enough time. I don't have this. No, you can do it, but it's absolutely it's hard. You know, when you are mentally and physically exhausted, when you've had a rough shift, I mean, one of my closest friends just had a horrific call over this last weekend where they had to pull multiple kids out of a pool. He did CPR on two toddlers by himself, and both of them are pronounced dead. And you want to talk about the mental toll that takes on him when he goes back home to his two-year-old. 
I mean, how are you supposed to get over that when you're staring at your own kid and you've got the kid's mucus still on your uniform and you've got that, you got that feeling going on. It's, it's something that I, I've had, I've held, I've held kids in my arms that didn't make it. I've worked on four-year-olds. I've, I've seen families burn to death. I've done, you name it, man. And it takes a toll. So it, it, once you want to get home, sometimes it's like, man, how do I recoup? How do I take this time back? You have to go back to shift the next day. So and that's a lot of guys suck it up. And that's where that's, we need policies and infrastructure to support it. Yeah, that's where it's so important to have that culture of wellness in your agency so that you have that you have people around you who can help take care of you, who can, who can, who can you know, give you a check and say, hey, it looks like you're not doing so great. You know, maybe you needed to to take a mental health day and, and maybe you need to go see someone to talk about this. You know, I think that's where it's so important to have that culture around you. So, so question for you, when you had your incident, when you were 26, what changed in your life and your lifestyle after that? What changes did you make? I'll be honest. I mean, right after it first happened, I went through a wealth of emotions, you know, and, uh, I experienced some survivor's guilt at, at first. And, you know, I, I buried several friends in the line of duty people, including my mentor. And it was a, it was a big hit. Like, you know, why is it these better men than me gave their lives and I've been given a second chance. And it, it was, it was something that I had to, I had to swallow my pride and deal with. And, and then, then I, it was a whole turn to anger. You know, I'm 26 years old. Now I'm being told that I have to retire. And it's like, who the, who the hell are you to tell me what I can and can't do? I mean, I'm safe. I'm, I'm safe with anybody else in this department. You're going to, you're going to try to cast me aside. So then I go into this anger stage. I mean, I just wanted to move on. I wanted to get back. I just wanted to get back on the SWAT team. I wanted to get back with the guys. I wanted to get back in the streets. I wanted to train, but I'm being told I can't. And there's a lot of survivors, a lot of, a lot of, first responders that experience these issues and just get cast aside, get forced into retirement. I have a young Canadian firefighter that just reached out to me recently that is trying to, he's fighting for his job and he's being forced out because of stupid protocols. People don't, they don't look at it as a case to case basis. And it's, it's such a sad thing to see, but emotionally I went through this roller coaster and I, when I, I finally got talked to by a mentoring doctor and Dr. Ben Balbro. He's one of the creators of the hands-only CPR. And he invited me to his office here in Arizona when he was the state and trauma director. And he, he said, look, I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you some research. And he helped me get my job back. He helped me bring a bunch of information to my PD and challenge the risk management and whatnot. But he asked me to come and speak at some, at some conference. I'm like, look, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a knuckle dragon street cop. I'm not a public speaker. You don't want me in front of people. Like, <laughs> that was my attitude. I don't want to do any, I, if you would have told me I would have dropped to reserve to focus on my nonprofit a few years later, I would have laughed in your face. There's no way I would have ever thought mm -hmm. I'd be doing what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. But I spoke at that event and I had so this 16 year old girl come up to me in tears who is, uh, who had some heart issues. And she said, she's waiting for the day that she goes down. And she was so grateful that I shared what I experienced and we talked about what I experienced in the afterlife. And when she hugged me, I, I, it, like, like Mr. Washington Booker said, you want to help somebody, you want to help yourself, help somebody else first. And it was one of those situations that once I started helping others, it opened this door for me. And as soon as I started doing, speaking at conferences and connecting with other survivors and helping them get through their funk. And then once you started implementing these programs, and they started getting saves. I can't tell you that that incredible feeling that knowing that the program that you work so hard for is going out there and people are alive today because of a program you implemented. It's it filled me with a sense of righteousness. So I, I didn't so much change as much. I was already working out. I was already, I was already trying to get good sleep. I was trying to do everything I can to the best of my abilities. It didn't change me on the physical level, but I, 
it made me reevaluate how I do things. And I, it, it, on the other side, I was told to earn it. So at the end of every day, I said, did I earn this day I was given? Sure. At the end of each day, was I a good enough father? Was I a good enough husband? Did I make an impact on my work? Did I make some kind of difference? And earn each day became my motto and our mantra for our organization. And it really helped me mentally and physically change my life and start pursuing these programs that we're doing now. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about the about the nonprofit and how can people support you guys? Absolutely. So our nonprofit is called Griffith Blue Heart Nonprofit. And what we do is we prepare, train and equip law enforcement for resuscitation emergencies. So we help them in all aspects from identifying the need to get AEDs to helping them acquire funding, whether it be through city funds or drug monies or vehicle replacements or grants. We will help them every step of the way. And then we also do dispatch protocols and field deployments and, you know, research and tracking and recognition for officers, say, which is probably one of my one of my most favorite things we get to do. Um, if you want to support us, you know, these programs are extremely expensive. So if you want to donate, go to griffithblueheart.com. We've got PayPal set up. We've got several links. We're about to launch a new coffee this weekend and all the proceeds from our coffee go towards our resuscitation programs. We're constantly having to buy pads, batteries. We put on training for law enforcement um, throughout the year to teach them high performance resuscitation training. I got to pay my guys. I got to pay them to come off the streets as SWAT medics and flight medics and you know physicians and other guys that come out to help we can always use extra funding we can always use extra support tell your police department how much you support them talk to them ask them if they have an aed program put them in touch with us i mean we would absolutely love to help get these programs to spread well i just put a a link in the chat and so if you want to make a donation to griffith blue heart go to that link and uh Make a donation there, and I'm sure that it will be put to good use to uh, to support officers and other first responders who are uh, who need this kind of a thing. So I'm going to put this on the screen here as well. Let me see if that's the right thing. Yeah, uh, there it is. You. Yep. So, uh, well, Brandon, it's been really a great conversation to have you on the show tonight and to to tell your story and to just the important work that you are doing in. We, with, with saving the lives of not only law enforcement, but saving the lives of community members uh, in your community. And I think that's a, a very honorable thing. And, and thank you uh, on behalf of a citizen to you. Thank you for the work you're doing. And, and I think that this is something that should spread. It should spread to, to every agency in the country to make this a priority. Because as you said, you know, we had over 600,000 deaths related to heart disease. And uh, we don't think about that, right? I don't know why, you know. Especially if, uh, in the news cycle today, we don't think about that. Yeah, if a yeah. plane went down every single day and, you know, a thousand people died, people would not, wouldn't wouldn't fly. They wouldn't get in the skies. But for some reason, everyone's just okay with cardiac deaths. They're just like, oh, you know, they, they, they must have had too many cheeseburgers. They must have not worked out. <laughs> they must, they, everyone thinks that's something that you did. They don't think about that. 16 year old kid on the football field that's in the best shape of his life that drops. They don't think about the stress that the officers and our first responders are under that causes some of their incidents. It just, it's uh, I thank you for the kind words. You know, I really appreciate the support and the opportunity to be able to come on here and every one of you that signed up to listen to, to hear the street cop talk. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the support. Absolutely. And, and if you are, are listening or watching at a later date, there's, uh, you may not be, I'm not sure if you'll be able to see the, the chat uh, with, with the links, but uh, I'll put, make sure this link is in the show notes. 
So for the audio as well, for the audio podcast. So if you list, are listening on Apple Podcasts or one of those other, other podcast programs at a later date, we'll put those links in the show notes so that you can access those and go right to griffithblueheart.com and make a, make a contribution to, to uh, Brandon's, uh, his mission. So uh, tell me, is this your purpose? Is this why you are here? Uh, that's such a loaded question. I don't know. You know, I, I look at all my purposes as a father, as a husband, as a first responder and in the nonprofit world. I don't know. I'm trying to give God a reason to keep me around. I'm trying to earn each day that I'm given because you never know when your time's up. You know, I've had buddies hit by hit by cars and sideswiped and not make it home at the end of their shift. I've had buddies taken out by gunfire. I've had other buddies commit suicide. You just you, you never know. So I just try to cherish each one and earn each one of them. And Hopefully this is my purpose. Hopefully I'm doing the right thing and giving God a reason to keep me around. Well, I think you're doing the right thing. And I think you are uh, going to discover that you're fulfilling your purpose and in your mission. You know, sometimes I think, I think God lets us take a step in the direction. Then, you know, he blesses what we do if we're doing, you know, his work. And I think you're saving lives. And I think that's God's work in, uh, in, in saving lives. So Brandon, thank you for being on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Appreciate the work you're doing. And we're going to stay in touch and uh, Thank you. keep uh, keep moving forward and keep moving uh, keep moving the needle toward wellness, right? Absolutely. Thank you, sir. So we've had a number of people jump in. We didn't have any questions come through, but we have a lot of comments there. So. Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. I want to give you a teaser for what's going to be up next month. We have another special guest coming. Let me see if I can pull this up here, if I can figure out how to do that. Here we have uh, next month, we have Dr. Lori Hood. She's a neurophysicist and forensics trauma traumatologist. She's a leading expert in trauma, PTSD, neuroscience, and human potential. She has focused her research and clinical work on first responders, victims of mass trauma, and high performers. It's going to be an amazing conversation. So be sure to join us next next time, October 12th, 8 p.m. October 12th. I think that's a Tuesday night. So uh, be sure to join us for Dr. Lori Hood being right here on PTSD 911 Presents. But tonight we had the privilege of having Brandon Griffith on the show and uh, all of you who joined with us tonight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for uh, being a part of the first responder community. Thank you for uh, what you're doing out there in our communities, keeping our communities healthy and safe. And I wish each one of you a, a great evening and a, a fall season that is full of life and health and may you be well. Be well in all that you do. Thank you for watching tonight. Brandon, stick around after I sign off here and we'll we'll follow up offline. So thank you everybody for watching and we'll see you again next time on PTSD 901 Presents.